Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Kia ora everyone, hope you're having a great week and this week on the podcast I'm stoked to bring to you the conversation that I had with Dr. Ama Dolan from Brazil. Dr. Dolan, as you will hear, is Irish and she has spent the most of her research career looking at what impacts bone metabolism and that is what we discuss today in this podcast. So we discuss the pivotal times across the lifespan where we grow and lose bone, what impacts negatively on bone turnover and accelerates bone loss, how we can hold on to the bone we have, and practical things we can do to protect our skeletal structure as we age. There is a lot of really good practical tips in that discussion. And we also talked about Dr. Dolan's new paper looking at low energy availability through an evolutionary lens. So those of you who listened to and enjoyed Herman Ponce's interview that I had a few months ago will also enjoy that conversation too. I've got a link to Dr. Dolan's ResearchGate page which provides her latest research articles and where you can find her and so um, you will find that in the show notes. And just before we jump into that conversation, I'd like to remind you that the best way to support the podcast team is to jump on over and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star review if you can, because that just increases the awareness of Wikipedia and gets conversations like these out to more people. If you wanted to go that little step further, you can head on over to my website, mickeywillardin.com, where in addition to real food nutrition plans, fat loss plans. I also have recipe portal access where for 12 bucks a month you can sign up, get all my latest recipes, a weekly email from me. You get to become part of my real food community where we do Q&A forums and you get the opportunity to pick my brain. So um, on anything nutrition and health related. So that would be going the extra mile. All right, team, I hope you really enjoy the conversation that I have with Dr. Ema Dolan. Ema, Dr. Dolan, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I'm really excited to chat to you about your research interests in bone metabolism, your sort of evolutionary lens towards low energy availability, and just to get some of these theoretical concepts and how they may practically be applied or if they can practically be applied for general population elite athletes that kind of thing and just a general geek out really this morning thank you so much for the invitation i'm really looking forward to our conversation Emma, can we start with you uh, telling me a little bit about your background in this area and how in your initial interest in your field so sort of where have you come from um well probably tell by the accent. I'm Irish, but I'm actually based in Brazil. I've been here now for the last six years in Sao Paulo. Um, I'm not an evolutionary anthropologist. I should make that clear from the start, but I teamed up with, uh, with some colleagues for this recent paper. But my background is I trained in sports and exercise science. Um, my PhD was largely sports nutrition orientated, but I worked with a group who are at really quite high risk of low energy availability, which are horse racing jockeys. Um, they have to 
weight cycle quite a lot and they sometimes do some quite crazy things to to align with the requirements of their sport so they were a really interesting group to work with so that was kind of where my interest in this general area started out um and yeah I've kind of taken a long and twisted and winding road to get to where I am now but um that's basically my background is sports and exercise science and sports nutrition um, but I just have always had an interest in this more evolutionary side. And this recent paper was an opportunity to explore that. Yeah, no, that sounds great. And how did you sort of fall in with the jockey crowd? Are you a, a equestrian yourself or is it just sort of the available research at the time? <laughs> uh, I, I would have loved to have been called that at the time. I did ride a bit as a, when I was younger, but like my little pony out in the field, you wouldn't call me a jockey <laughs> by any means. Um, but it, it actually, it just came up when I was doing my undergrad degree in Dublin City University. Um, one of the lecturers there at the time, uh, Dr. Giles Warrington, was advertising for a PhD um, student to take on a project related to uh, horse racing. And it was actually, yeah. it was funded by the um, the horse racing council in Ireland and the yeah. idea was just to get a better idea of the challenges that were facing these these athletes and to put together kind of programs and guidelines and recommendations for how they could potentially challenge them so that was how I came into it it, it was just an opportunity that arose and um, it's still yeah. ongoing I was actually home in Ireland there last week and I um, actually examined a PhD on a very similar topic and um, my guy Arthur Dunn is congratulations Dr Dunn is uh, now continuing this work so it's evolved a lot since I was there but that's basically how I came into it. Oh, that's awesome. And then uh, sort of more recently, I suppose a lot of your research projects are around bone metabolism, is that? Yes. Um, so that's my primary focus right now. And it was always a major interest of mine because my, my PhD was very bone orientated because one of the most striking findings, I suppose, was that we were seeing quite low bone mass and perturbed bone metabolism in the jockeys. Um, however, I came to Brazil to do a postdoc and I actually shifted focus for a while and I was working on um, buffering supplements. Uh, I was working with beta alanine and carnosine, but in a kind of a out their way I used a comparative physiology model to investigate carnosine metabolism so that was a whole just change of pace altogether for me it was a different research approach a different topic a different country a different language um, yeah. but I always had that underlying interest in bone metabolism and I always had a few projects kind of tipping along and then two years ago um, I was awarded funding for a four-year research program on how I'm le now leading a program on how exercise and nutrition influences bone in various populations. So I'm now kind yeah. of back to where I started with my original interest, and that's my my main focus right now. Can we sort of get a little bit of background on that bone metabolism stuff? So how does how does bone sort of change over the lifespan? How does it evolve, and what's sort of the the natural progression, if you like? Oh, so I think bone is it's a tissue that we sometimes forget to talk about because, well, we, we don't see it. We don't. Uh, it's not quite as obvious as, say, for example, the muscle, etc. But it's such an important tissue to to be aware of. And your bone is adapting right throughout your lifestyle. You're going to have your life um, cycle. You're going to have three main phases, I suppose, from birth right up, you're going to have quite accelerated uh, growth and development. You're going to be laying down a lot of bone mass. And that happens quite quickly throughout childhood and adolescence it levels off then a bit but continues to rise when you're kind of in your 20s and most of us have hit peak bone mass at around about 30. Obviously this varies mm. person to person and will depend on a lot of factors but in that first kind of 30 years mainly the first 
20, you're really going to be laying down your bone. So what you have then is kind of what you have. It's very hard to go go higher than that after. Then you reach a more uh, stable phase. So for the next approximately 20, 30 years of your life, your bone is essentially staying, should stay relatively stable. And then we all hit a phase uh, towards later life where your bone starts to decline. Um, Mm. This will happen. It happens for both men and women. But for women, it is a bit of a sharper decline. And it happens around about menopause when uh, hormones are levels of various hormones are dropping. um, It can cause quite a sharp decline. So really, if you want to look after your bone health, the first thing you need to do is to make sure in those early years that you're hitting as high a peak as possible. And Mm. then you want your lifestyle practices to basically hold on to that for as long as you are as you can to to put off that decline and also to minimize that decline, hoping that we can reach the end of our lives without with still a reasonable amount there. Yeah. And Emma, your research in around bone metabolism in that, um, you know, when people lose bone due to nutrition influence or exercise influence like can that be recouped if you lose it that's a great question um it's very difficult to be honest once you lose bone it's very difficult to recoup it which is why it's so important to look after it early on because by the time we've realized it's gone um or it's, it's declining it's already quite difficult to come back it's not impossible particularly in the earlier years and uh, throughout your life, it's not impossible to build bone mass. However, Mm. if you've lost it at that stage, it is quite difficult to get it back, which is why preventive um, strategies and trying to look after it from the start is such an important thing. The thing about bone is it changes very quickly. You lose it Mm. slowly, you gain it slowly, you lose it slowly, and it's quite hard to, to reverse that. So that's not to say now if somebody is diagnosed with low bone mass that there's nothing you can do. Don't worry, there's still lots you can do. You can protect what you already have. Um, but while it, it is difficult to get it back, um, simply because it's so slow to adapt. Yeah. And which groups of people would be most at risk of that accelerated bone loss over their sort of lifespan outside of, of course, the what you would normally expect, like menopause, etc.? So there are certain phases, as you just said, that all of us need to be quite conscious of. And as we get older, you will naturally lose some bone. You're not going to hold on to it till the very end. However, there are certainly some some phases of life and some factors that can really either help you reach that peak or maximize that peak or slow down that decline. Nutrition and exercise, I assume, is what we're going to talk about here. But groups that are at particular risk are certain groups of athletes. Not all. There are certain situations where high levels of sport and activity are extremely good for your bones, but there are certain situations where it can actually um, be a, a danger point for your bones. And we can talk more about that in terms of energy availability, set, et cetera, later. Um, but on the flip side, sedentary individuals are also at a higher risk of, of losing bone because basically bone responds to the, the forces that are put in it. Mm. So the more you use your body, it's the same pretty much with all tissues, the more you use it, the more your body adapts and responds to that and the stronger it's going to be. So you mm. probably will often hear things about uh, impact loading for your bone and um, either gravitational or muscular forces. If it's if it's feeling a kind of a, a bang, if it's feeling some impact and some loading, the bone responds to that and thinks, OK, I need to be able to cope with this. And it repairs mm. it, it. It builds itself stronger to be able to cope with that. So if you're either very sedentary, that can certainly be a risk factor. 
if you ex- have very, very high levels of certain types of training, the very low impact training, particularly if you have low energy availability, that can also be a risk factor. And there's also certain groups um, of uh, clinical populations who are going to be at higher risk. For example, we have a project on here right now with patients who take uh, glucocorticoid therapies. Now, yeah. glucocorticoids, huge clinical benefits in a lot of situations. They're one of the most widely used treatments, but they actually can lead to bone loss. So if mm. you have a condition that uh, maybe you need to take certain types of medications, that can also be um, a risk factor. And of mm. course, nutrition. Um, yeah. What we eat, we, we are what we eat kind of thing. Um, yeah. what, what you eat really is going to impact all the tissues of your body and bone is no exception to that. Yeah. It, are, are people who have poor blood sugar management or type 2 diabetes, would, are they at increased risk of bone loss for, I don't know, in, inflammatory reasons or uh, inability to utilise fuel or anything like that? That's actually a great question and uh, probably stepping a little bit outside of my area because I don't work uh, very much with diabetes. But for sure, there's going to be a lot of risk factors there in terms of a lot of the factors that can contribute, particularly for type 2 diabetes, not so much Mm. type 1, but say type 2 diabetes is very much associated with um, lower activity levels and perhaps suboptimal nutritional practices. And a lot of them are also um, very much involved in maintaining healthy bones as well. So for sure, there are going to be issues there. There's also some really interesting work going on at the moment in terms of how carbohydrates themselves directly influence uh, bone. Mm. And it seems like carbohydrates are quite essential to maintaining healthy bones as well. So any condition that's going to have issues with that is going to be a risk factor. Um, Yeah. Again, as with many tissues, there's so many things that can influence. It's not to yeah. say automatically, if you've got diabetes, you automatically have, have uh, problems with bone as well. However, there are issues that common pathways there that for sure is something to keep an eye on. Yeah. Um, Emma, on that low carbohydrate um, point, I've definitely seen studies that have looked at um, sort of acute measures of bone loss. I believe they're acute uh, in relation to that sort of doing exercise, withholding carbohydrate, and it's potentially detrimental to bone. Are Mm -hmm. those markers that are being used, um, does that tell us also what happens in the long term or is it speculation? Like what's the, yeah, what is the research body like in regards to that sort of low carbohydrate approach? Only in that, of course, now a number of athletes are utilizing these different strategies for Mm -hmm. other reasons to help with those potentially endurance adaptations. I think oh, there's so much in, in what you've just said there that we can unpick. There's so many um, interesting topics to talk about there. I think so. First and foremost, I'd say that the studies that we have at the moment, particularly in athletes, are very early stage. And like you said, they're, they're, they're based on bone biomarkers, mm. which tell you the acute response. Now, there's two broad kind of categories of bone biomarkers that we use in these studies. Some that show formation, how we build the bones. Others that show resorption, how the bone breaks down. And the study that I, I think you might be referring to was done by an Australian group led by mm. Professor Louise Burke um, in a group of race walkers. Is that the one you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah. Um, they showed, now I'm testing my memory here, but they showed uh, perturbations in the bone resorption markers, which mm. you would assume if you're bo- breaking down more bone in the short term, if you continue that, it should eventually lead to to reduce bone mass. However, we really need those long term studies to to confirm that. Uh, mm. So it is really important that we confirm that in the long term. 
because we're assuming that these bone biomarkers, if these metabolic shifts carry on, we assume that they lead to changes to bone mass, to bone structure. However, you have to measure it for a long, long time to confirm that. Um, But then you do have observational studies at the same time where, say, taking a group of people who have, say, followed a low-carb diet for quite a long time and comparing them to people who haven't. And it does seem that bone mass may be lower. However, Mm. of course, when you take an observational study, there's a lot of other things that come into play there. And one of the main biggest difficulties in investigating how low carbs might impact bone is that it can often be very difficult to separate low carbs from low energy. Um, Because sometimes people will reduce one unless you replace with something else, which doesn't always occur. You've now got both low energy and low carbs and potentially low micronutrients because if you're taking out uh, foods. So it's, it's hard to say exactly which it is. But overall, the evidence, early evidence would be saying that perhaps longer term low carb diets are, are perhaps not ideal for your bone health. Mm. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And you mentioned, of course, low energy and how that might impact negatively on bone. Like, what does the research say about that? So um, this is a, a topic that we've covered in, in this paper that, that we mentioned recently. Uh, we got into it with the evolutionary paper as well. Essentially, your body is going to have a certain amount of energy to work with yeah. uh, during the day, and it has to spread it out among all the processes that are available. If you're consuming less than your body needs um, and not leaving enough for all those processes, essentially the body has to have a, a strategy to allocate your energy in the way that makes more sense, that's going to make most sense for the body at that moment. And unfortunately, it seems that bone doesn't always make the cut there, that bone is one of the uh, systems that can be sacrificed when energy availability is low. Mm. Um, So really, one of a major risk factor for uh, low bone mass is not eating enough to Mm. fuel your body. Yeah. And is there a particular time period? Because of course, there are people who want to improve. So I'm thinking general population wise, you've got people who would like to lose weight from a health perspective, are they at risk of this or is it a, you know, a different population, people who might not have as much to play with with regards to that low energy? And I think that's, uh, you're, you're getting into the most, the most important research questions now. I would say that it hugely depends on the extent of deficit and mm. how low your energy availability is because there are going to be certain groups who perhaps want or need to lose a certain amount of weight for for health purposes which mm. is can be really important can is absolutely fine um a really interesting uh, body of work that's actually going on in, in our research group here in Sapalo at the moment is looking at how extreme weight loss following bariatric surgery mm. can impact uh, tissues like that and yes it does seem that healthy weight loss weight loss is healthy for some parameters still can lead to bone loss. So what we really need to look at in those situations is are there strategies that we can implement that can allow for this healthy weight loss or protect your bone tissue at the same time? And that's where you're going to get into strategies around your exercise habits and your nutritional habits, because it's not just about how much we're eating. Of course, the quality of what we're eating is also going to have a huge impact on what's going on. So if you do need to induce an energy deficit for whatever reason, there are, there are better and worse ways to potentially do that. Yeah, no, that's great. It, interesting, I often, you know, when I talk to clients about their diet and, and strategies that help just from an overall sort of health perspective, a lot of women tend, and, and maybe it's just because my, the population I work with, largely women, um, really benefit from removing dairy. 
just from an inflammatory perspective, from a gut perspective, as they head into sort of perimenopause, menopause, they a lot of them actually feel a lot better when they're not consuming um, dairy. But of course, you've then got that calcium question. So I guess more broadly speaking, how do we explain, so calcium is the nutrient, which we all think about when it comes to bones. And obviously there are other important nutrients, which I'd love to ask you about. But how do, you, how do we explain, um, I guess, the populations who don't consume dairy yet have very good bones throughout across their life, or it appears that they do, uh, compared to sort of the message we get that we um, absolutely need dairy for, for calcium reason. Like I've always found that very difficult to um, consolidate in my head. <laughs> um, and I suppose there... Okay, if you want to go at like broad brush strokes, absolutely mm. calcium and vitamin D are essential for bone health yeah. because calcium has a lot of uses in the body. 99% of your calcium is stored in your bone mm. and then you're going to have a certain amount that circulates in the, the system and circulates in the blood and it's used for a whole host of, of, of functions, including, for example, muscle contraction. You're also going to be losing some calcium all the time, mm -hmm. urine, feces, um, sweat. You're going to be losing calcium. So if you're not taking in enough to replace what you're losing, the body will draw down from the, the bone. Mm. Essentially, the bone is like a, a savings account. It's a, like a reservoir, a bank of, of calcium. Now, if you're constantly withdrawing and not putting it back, mm. eventually that bone is going to lose mineral and it's going to, to weaken the, the, the mineral, the calcium within bone uh, keeps it strong. Mm. So if there's, a, if there's always an imbalance between the amount you're taking in and the amount you're using or losing, eventually something has to give yeah however I think returning to your point uh, there there's some groups who perhaps have quite low calcium intake and mm. seem to do fine there's going to be there, there's so many parts of the chain that we have to look at some people have better calcium absorption for example than others yeah. so maybe they're consuming less but maybe they're super efficient yeah and um, it can vary in how much you lose so, so you can, uh, perhaps you see, perhaps some people are actually losing less in meaning that they can get away with taking in more. Yeah. And also I think we very much focus on the dairy products for calcium and for good reason, dairy products are, are a great source of calcium, but you're also going to get in a lot of other foods, for example, green leafy, there's certain uh, vegetables, et cetera. So perhaps the person is actually getting it in another place. Yeah. So I think there's a, a lot of different factors to consider there in terms of um, why somebody who may have relatively low calcium intake is maintaining healthy bones and um, they, they could be compensating in other places like that in terms of the absorption in terms of other yeah other sources etc yeah and and I know in in terms of other nutrients from an evolutionary perspective as I understand it like people who were whose ancestors were landlocked for example might be better at converting sort of those shorter chain omega-3s to longer chain because they didn't have access to their diet. Um, you mentioned sort of super absorbers. I just sort of rephrased. Um, is there a genetic basis maybe or could there be an evolutionary basis to that? Do we know anything about that? For sure, we can't say definitively because it is so hard to know exactly what it is that our um, ancestors actually ate. Mm. Um, I, you're you're Recent guest, uh, Professor Herman Ponser, I, I listened to that talk recently, has a, a lot of uh, work in this area. And it really is very difficult to know exactly what our ancestors um, ate. There are certain things that can give indications that have kind of survived, like, I don't know, tools that, that showed. But we can assume that they probably did have 
quite varied diets. We basically evolved to eat what we could get our hands on. And like you said there, uh, humans in different parts of the parts of the globe probably adapted to different diets. For yeah. example, you've got some some uh, humans in Alaska that had survived on almost entirely fish and you've got others who more landlocked who perhaps uh, had a completely different and that's something that I just find so fascinating is how we've evolved to be so flexible and adaptable in what we eat and I think that's something we so have to keep in mind when it comes down to like sometimes it feels like there's like diet wars of we should eat this or we should eat that but our bodies are so incredibly complex and smart we're actually capable of of not only surviving but thriving on a really wide range of uh, of diets. Yeah. Um, and I think we should keep that in mind too when we consider what we absolutely should or absolutely shouldn't. There is no absolutes. And I think human variability is huge. Yeah. Like from one person to another, we're all going to re- there's certain broad things that we can consider our age or sex or uh, activity levels or body composition. They're all going to influence how we deal with certain situations. But there's always going to be that genetic difference with the individual that's going to make one person respond a little different to the other. So we always have to take that into consideration. Yeah. And I, and to your point, um, some moments ago when we were chatting about uh, preventative strategies to stop losing bone, exercise, there are a lot of, um, sort of discussions and arguments, if you like, over what most people should be eating. But actually, movement plays a large part in our ability to retain muscle and bone and and things like that so I suppose that's another really important feature absolutely like exercise essentially your bone your bone is going to respond to its physical environment yeah Um, there's something called the mechanostat or mechanostat I'm not sure how to pronounce it I only ever see it written down Um, but it's a theory which basically is that your body senses the loads that are typically placed on it and it adapts because if you, again, thinking about it from an evolutionary perspective, you don't want your bones to be too big or too heavy because yeah. you have to carry them around all the time. Mm. So there's no point going overboard. But at the same time, you don't want them to, to snap every time you stumble over a pavement. So it, it, the body really has to hit, get, hit that sweet spot mm. where they're strong enough, but not too strong, so strong that they're slowing us down. And this is what the mechanostat theory uh, predicts, is that it senses the daily signals and it, it adapts accordingly. Yeah. Um, now, again, like I say, with the bone, it's daily signals, but they accumulate over, mm. over longer period of, periods of time. So really assuming that you're not completely deficient in any nutrients, assuming that your diet is, is all right, um, the, the physical environment, the exercise and the movement that you do is going to be probably the primary indicator or primary determinant of your bones. Yeah. Well, the primary modifiable one, like yeah. you said, genetics always comes in. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, we can't do anything about that. So let's focus on the ones that we can actually do something about. And really, if you want to look after your bones, keep moving yeah. uh, as much as possible. Yeah, totally. And where are we at with regards to calcium supplementation, Emma and Obviously, we know calcium is important for bone, and if you are unable to get it from the diet, then a lot of the times people look to a supplement. But as I understand it, there has been uh, research in the last 10 years to show that women who take calcium supplements might be at an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Has that changed over time? Do you know, or is that sort of out of your scope of what you, you work in? To be honest now, the, the more the risk factors in terms of the, the influence of calcium supplementation and cardiovascular risk is, is a little bit out of my scope. Yeah. Um, but I would say now, in terms of supplements overall, um, 
food first, but not food only. I don't know if you saw that article that came out recently by uh, Professor Graham Close in Liverpool. Um, I am very much, I do believe that wherever possible, we should aim to meet all our nutrient requirements from food. Mm. And that in the vast majority of situations, we can do that. There are some situations where people struggle with with that Mm. for whatever reason. For example, if you have a lactose intolerance, maybe it's very difficult for you to meet your calcium needs, uh, in which case, um, and vitamin D also is another one, calcium and vitamin D go together. So so you kind of consider them together, in which case supplements can be very useful for you. There is also um, athletes are a group who have kind of quite specific needs and there are uh, there are uh, situations where that can be um, appropriate as well. However, and what I think you were kind of asking about there, correct me if I'm wrong, you might notice I talk too much and I ramble a lot. So if I'm, so if I'm going off target, <laughs> but probably, I don't know if that makes us a good or a bad combination. <laughs> <laughs> if I drift off target or if I've misunderstood your question, please feel free to tell me. But I think from the point of view of the risk factor with supplements is, again, it's about hitting that sweet spot. Yeah. Too much of anything is not good for you. So I think sometimes we take this advice, oh, calcium, vitamin D is important for your bone okay everyone supplement but no if you're eating enough you don't need to maybe you're going too far and your body doesn't know what to do with it and then it ends up perhaps accumulating or needing to be excreted which puts pressure it again the specifics of the cardiovascular uh, that you mentioned is not really my area but yeah. in general too much of anything is yeah. as can be as bad as too little so I think indiscriminately supplementing just saying calcium is good for our bones so therefore we should all take calcium supplements there's absolutely no need for that yeah. our bodies have evolved we eat the foods that contain what we need yeah um, if you are eating a diet with largely natural whole foods from a wide range of food groups the chances are you're meeting all of your micronutrient needs and probably don't need to supplement yeah. if there's a specific reason you need to supplement because you're deficient absolutely. But just to bring yourself up to, to where you need to be, just to bring yourself out of deficiency, there's sometimes this misconception that if some is good, more is better. Yeah. Not necessarily. Sometimes more can be actually quite harmful on its own. So I think supplementing across the board, not so useful. Yeah. Okay, no, that's great. No, and that's exactly what, what I was wondering about. So calcium is obviously important. What are some of the other nutri- uh, nutrients which specifically are great for bone so if i'm thinking of when i'm thinking in terms of nutrient nutritional advice for bone i'm going to think of calcium and vitamin d as we've just mentioned energy availability Mm -hmm. which we've kind of touched on protein intake um and i had another one in my head oh yeah no sorry i put all the rest kind of together there's a whole host of other micronutrients that are going to be involved like magnesium phosphorus vitamin k however you need small amounts of all them Mm. so if you're eating a fairly well balanced diet from a lot of different food groups the chances are you're making all of those requirements and again trying to keep the emphasis on keep your plate colorful keep a lot of different food groups in there eat a wide range focus on the kind of more natural um less processed food chances are you're going to meet a lot of those uh, micronutrient needs Protein is a really interesting one and a really important one from the bone point of view. And it's also one that is quite debated. Yeah. Can we chat about that a little bit? Absolutely. It's actually, it's a really interesting concept because for an awful long time, there was a a theory out there that consuming high protein intake can actually be bad for the bone. Mm. And this was a real concern for athletes who are being encouraged to consume high protein 
for its muscle benefits for their sports but at the same time you're then well can this have a have a negative effect on my bones um have you have you heard of this theory it's called the acid ash hypothesis yes i have um so basically in a nutshell what that says or, or the theory and i'll stress here theory because mm-hmm. i don't I, I don't think it really works out like this in practice um, and i'll explain why but essentially what the acid ash hypothesis proposes is that if you're eating a lot, uh, very high protein and particularly animal foods, they have almost an acid load. They can mm. just slightly shift the, the, the pH of your body. Now, your body is well equipped to, to maintain a, a pH, so the body can cope with that. But the theory is that if you are eating a diet that has a high, they call it DAL, diet, dietary acid load, mm-hmm. that this might require the taking of calcium from the bone to normalize that because uh-huh. calcium is alkaline. So it kind of buffers it. It can balance it out. Yeah. Now, the evidence that this is based on is a people who have a higher dietary acid load, which mainly comes from animal foods, from uh, animal proteins. Um, they seem to have higher excretion of calcium. The assumption being that they were losing more. Yeah. And also some quite large scale observational studies show that people with a higher dietary acid load had tended to have lower bone mass. Mm. Now, there's two that we can, we can tackle both of those issues. The first one is that we, there, were, there was definitely some definite studies showing higher calcium excretion and higher protein. However, there's also evidence to indicate that higher protein um, also increases calcium absorption. Ah. So it might be that you're not just losing more, you're actually taking in more and it's not necessarily coming from the bone at all. Yeah. Um, so they seem to kind of balance each other out. And then on the other hand, we've got this associational studies that show that people with a higher dietary acid load had lower bone mass. But if you have a higher dietary acid load, that means you're not taking in a lot of what are called alkaline foods, which yeah. are fruits and vegetables. I don't really, the, the whole thing of the, the acidity of a diet doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. However, if you're taking in lower amounts of fruits and vegetables, you're also taking in lower amounts of a whole host of micronutrients. Yeah. So there's lots of other reasons why, why, this, why, why this might potentially um, not be the protein itself, might be other factors that are influencing. And there's actually been uh, quite a lot of work in the last few years. There's been, there's so much research in this area, but there's been a lot of evidence synthesis projects in the last few years. For example, uh, as, um, there's a kind of meta-analysis of meta-analyses by Rizzoli et al., um, the last few years, that shows that overall people with higher protein um, in their diet actually seems to have a beneficial effect on bone. Mm. And that can be for a whole host of reasons. For example, we've just said protein, very important for muscle. Muscle and bone work as a unit. They work together. What's good for one generally tends to be good for the other. Yeah. Um, so really pro- protecting protein intake can be a, 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 is an important thing for your bone. And within the levels that, say, athletes typically take, there's no evidence of any negative effect on yeah. bone. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And, you know, when I talk to people about protein, um, anyone who listens to my um, to the podcast will know this. I'm a big fan. Uh, so many of the sort of general population think they're taking on board quite a bit of protein, but when you actually sort of calculate it across the day, it's actually quite small. And in part because the, the amounts of protein that they think they're taking in are large compared to say the recommended dietary intake of 0.8 grams per kg body weight so the actual reference point for protein is quite a lot lower than those athletic intakes that we sort of think about so it's it's surprising to me actually how low 
people's protein continues to be, even sort of in light of much more emerging um, sort of awareness of the importance of it. Yeah, and I think I actually, I listened to your podcast with uh, Stuart Phillips recently, and uh, I, I really do I agree that 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 kind of recommended intake, it's on the, it's on the low side, particularly mm. for groups who are either at risk of muscle loss, for example, older adults, or for sure athletes who are turning over that much more. And I think, yeah, sometimes we think we're taking in a lot more than we actually are. But as you say, when you actually look at it, um, it's not it's not always as we think it is. And I think that's uh, protein really is uh, so essential for so many processes yeah. that it's so important to get it, whether it's through planter day or planter animal sources, whatever your preference, that's absolutely fine. You can meet your protein needs and yeah. um, whatever your dietary pattern. But it really is something to always be very conscious of for your bone, yeah. but also for so many other uh, factors. Yeah, for sure. Now, how do collagen peptides come into play with regards to bone health, if they do at all? So, you know, they're much more of a popular supplement that people are taking these days. And as I, I know that there has been sort of some preclinical work done looking at uh, mechanistically how taking additional collagen peptides might help the repair of tendons or potentially um, healing of fractures or um, I'm, I wonder if that's right actually now I'm sitting here talking about it but anyway what is is there any evidence to suggest that we need to take collagen for our bone or actually not? Um, it's 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 a, it's an area now that I'd certainly like to to investigate more and, and and get more on top of. I believe the research that you're referring to there is what's led by uh, Professor Keith Barr, um, and he's some fantastic work in that area in terms of um, the repair um, elements of collagen. Um, I would say that work is more mechanistic mm. and in terms of general supplementation. I'm not aware of much research in terms of does it actually, how, how we translate in terms of the supplements that we have. My understanding of a lot of the, the collagen supplementation research is that there are some studies that show beneficial aspects for various aspects of, of uh, health and performance, but most of them are compared to nothing as opposed to compared to a, a whole protein, for example, yeah. protein. And in general, taking something more isolated when it's already included in some of the in the the uh, broader protein supplements is not necessarily going to give you any additional benefits yeah um so i think that in general you're probably better off again i would always say impossible whole food sources you're going to get um all of those elements um in there in your whole food sources and if you struggle to meet your requirements then something like a, a, a whey protein supplement can be very useful, particularly for athletes where if you're like just getting enough time in the day to meet your, your nutrient requirements, especially when they're higher, when you're training so much, uh, yeah. supplements can be really useful. However, again, I would go try it with the whole foods first, try it with your, with your whey protein um, and then potentially the, consider putting the collagen peptides maybe lower down your list of priorities but I should probably stress collagen peptides are not my specific area of interest and certainly the the work by Professor Barr I'm not very uh up to date with all but there's some fascinating mechanistic work there yeah in terms of uh, tendon properties etc so there is a lot to be done there and a lot to, to find out yeah no that's awesome um Emma what about uh omega-3s is there anything like is there much research there on the 
impact of omega-3 intake in bone that you're aware of or have done? And I'm just wondering whether I'm sure I came across something that showed that I'm sort of outside of the usual supplements that we would consider with bone or usual nutrients, that there were some properties of omega-3s that helped with with maybe bone uh, building or, or less bone um, sort of breakdown? Um, yeah, and it does seem to indicate that diets high in omega-3 uh, fatty acids um, do seem to have some benefits for skeletal health. Mm. In terms of supplementation, again, we're coming back to the thing of just because it's important, do we necessarily need to supplement because more is not necessarily um, better. But for sure, the, the fatty acids do have a role in maintaining bone health and consuming adequate intake of those is is important. And again, it follows if you struggle to get that within the diet and um, taking it in terms of um, supplements can be useful. Uh, but as with all things, I would be supporting the start with a whole with a whole food approach. Uh, there was a systematic review on this, uh, I think it's a few years ago now, if my memory serves me well, it was Orchard et al., um, who did a systematic review on omega-3 supplements and osteoporosis. And they concluded that, that there was some evidence that there could be a potential benefit of supplementation on skeletal health. However, there was quite a f- uh, small studies, not very long. Um, so they, they, they weren't particularly strong on that. They were kind of like, it may be beneficial, it yeah. may be useful. Mechanistically, for sure, it has a role. However, the evidence is not very strong yeah and now i would for sure if my memory serves me which it doesn't do very often (laughs) there may well be more up to date since that uh, that review but that was one that i I saw quite recently no that's great and i mean you being in brazil with the the idea of sort of a minimally processed diet and whole foods i mean your entire dietary guidelines are set around those principles which here in new zealand we're much more like the u.s type guidelines in there so it's so different and I actually that's interesting like does that change like you've been how long have you been in Brazil for Aima I'm sort of I'm going a bit for, of a tangent but yeah no go for it I love tangents as you can probably tell and <laughs> um, I've been here for six years now that's right I remember you said that at the start of the call like do you notice a, a change or or do you notice the dietary guidelines reflected in food choices that that people make you know like if I think about our dietary guidelines geared very much towards breads and cereals and pasta. Not that, of course, they're forbidden in Brazil or anything like that, but that just the the tone is really different with regards to that. Not that anyone necessarily follows the guidelines here anyway, but what's it like in Brazil? Yeah, I would definitely say like food-wise, now I'm in Sao Paulo and you can find whatever you want. The food scene is, yeah, okay. is great here. So yeah. you really can follow the diet you want. But I would say the general dietary patterns, like, before I was here, I lived in Scotland and my lunch a lot of the time was like a packaged sandwich or something more often than not at the desk. Yeah. Here, there, I would definitely say we do eat much more real foods. For example, rice and beans is kind yeah. of a staple. Um, generally, they have here what's called a, a prato feto, which is just a, a ready dish. And it's just one of the most common lunches, which is going to be rice and beans, some salad and some kind of protein like fish or a piece of meat or chicken. And it's amazing when I go away for a while, I, I crave it. I'm like, I need my rice and beans again. Yeah. It's simple and it's filling. And um, there's much more of an emphasis here on having a large meal at lunchtime 
And at the beginning, that was quite difficult for me, um, yes. particularly as I, I just wasn't used to it. And then I go home thinking, right, dinner time, and I start <laughs> eating again. But I'm getting used to it more now. And I, I would certainly feel that Brazil is quite good for focusing on the more natural healthy foods yeah now, of course yeah it's a huge yeah. country there's a lot of people not yeah, everyone, yeah not everywhere yeah but certainly i would find that the general diet those they do seem to focus on those kind of naturally uh more natural whole foods which i think is is uh well certainly i feel good on it yeah absolutely and of course um in light of what we were we're discussing around bone that's where you're going to get a lot of those nutrients that are important in that overall big picture of the diet yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think for for in terms of meeting most of your dietary needs, and to be fair, all of the different um, kind of country guidelines, they essentially come down to. They might approach it from different ways, mm-hmm. but they essentially come down to similar kind of uh, recommendations mm-hmm. in terms of getting getting your foods from different food groups, avoiding the here calling them ultra processed, but in other yeah. dietary guidelines. They're just saying more directly, avoid a lot of like sweet biscuits, yeah, cakes. Yeah. Not that you need to cut them out. Of course, we all enjoy them. And uh, as my granny always said, a little of what you fancy does you good. Um, <laughs> but trying not to focus too much on them and trying to largely base your diet is going to up your chances of meeting all of your, your nutrient needs. Yeah. And, and of course, alongside that is your caloric requirement. And you know we've touched on low energy availability in the importance of that from a sort of bone perspective one of my first questions sort of around that um, just to sort of shift our focus to that is if an athlete experiences relative energy deficiency in in sport and with that has come like a you know they've lowered their bone mass um, I asked you if it was sort of recoverable for recoverable sort of in general but what is it that they can do to help improve their overall bone health at that point so you mean specifically now with athletic populations yeah yeah yeah. because that's like i suppose that's where we where a lot of people who are at risk of of that bone loss sort of earlier than expected and for sure there are certain groups of athletes like you just mentioned the relative energy deficiency in sport model and alongside that you've got the the female athlete triad model Mm. which really uh, focuses in on bone health yeah it it is I'll quote uh, Professor Craig Sale here. He said, uh, the, the greatest enemy to bone can be low, low energy availability. I'm sure I got that quote a little bit wrong, but he said something along those lines. Um, and it really is a major risk factor for bones. And it really is very prevalent for a lot of athletic groups. Now, I would say when you're talking to athletes about low energy availability, for me, the first thing that we need to figure out is why they're in low energy availability in the first place, because yeah. that's really going to influence what you can do. It's not always going to be realistic to meet the kind of the targets, particularly for endurance athletes who are doing very, very, have very, very high um, training related energy expenditures, who have trained a lot in terms of the the sheer volume of training Mm. they do. And also sometimes there's going to be elements where periods of energy deficiency can be actually beneficial for other um, aspects. For example, uh, driving the endurance phenotype, you don't, you want to maintain a a quite a lean um, uh, physique. So I think, yeah, sorry, I'm drifting off on tangents, tangent here. I would say, figure out what, what, why it is. Mm. Sometimes there's going to be practical issues, in which case, you can work. You can work around. Uh, you, can, you can try to figure out strategies as to how you can potentially fuel more. 
Um, there are elements of we know that there are different athletic types that are more or less at risk of low bone mass. And in general, athletes who participate in sports that have higher impact, multi-directional loading, they're kind of moving around a lot. They tend to have quite strong bones mm. and are going to be at less of a risk for low bone mass in the first place. Whereas your endurance athletes, your cyclists, your endurance runners are going to be at more of a risk of low bone mass. And also your weight category athletes who need to, say, uh, maintain quite low bone mass. Yes. Yeah, so, so they're much more at risk. And what can they do to, I suppose... Uh, prevent some of the inevitable and negative impact of their sport, I suppose, and all of those yeah, for the, all of those reasons that you've just described. Okay, so I would say for a start, uh, we really need to think to differentiate between the extent of deficit. Yeah. Um, maybe it's not practical or feasible for you to meet kind of the the guidelines, but you can get as close to it as is feasible because for sure, the bigger the deficit, the greater the consequences. Yeah. So don't don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. If you're not able to to meet the full recommendations of your energy, meet your full energy requirements, get as close as you can in the way as practically as possible. Returning to what we were talking about there earlier, the quality of the diet is going to be huge. So if you're in deficit, you want to make damn sure that you are getting all of the nutrients that you can from the foods that you have. You want to make sure that that food is as high quality um, as possible. Because one thing that is very difficult to separate when we're investigating how energy availability impacts bone is separating low energy availability from low nutrient availability. Mm. So, for example, are you low in protein? Are you low in calcium and vitamin D? Uh, What else is going on there that we can potentially um, target? And actually, we have a study going on here at the moment where we're looking at how protecting protein intake might impact the bone metabolic response to low energy availability. And data collection is ongoing. Results aren't available yet. Mm. But certainly from a theoretical point of view, I would say that protect your protein intake yeah. when you can. If you're, if, if you're going to be low in energy availability, something has to give. Yeah. You can't protect everything. Um, I would say protect your protein first and foremost. And there is good evidence that that has a protective effect in, uh, from a muscle point of view yeah. in terms of in-deficit and um, there's some really cool studies where they induce to deficit, but varied the protein intake. Yeah. Now, in general, from a muscle protein synthesis um, response, when you go into definite deficit, it reduces muscle protein synthesis rate. But when you vary the protein amount, those on the same deficit, but a higher protein uh, intake, they actually, it doesn't counteract it, but it reduces that reduction. Yeah. It attenuates the reduction. So it protects you in a certain extent. So for sure, keeping the lean proteins in your diet is important. Yeah. Keeping a, a wide range of fruit and veg to try to make sure that you're meeting your micronutrient um, requirements is going to be important. This is all going to help, even if you're not actually getting up to the, the, the full requirements. Is timing important, Emma? So, so if we are able to have those nutrients sort of pre and post workout, is that more important for someone in a deficit um, to help protect bone, do we think? That's a great question. And I'm going to now talk more broadly in terms of the effects of energy availability, because there's not that much specifically on bone. However, everything is so interconnected that we can kind of make some leaps. There was actually a a great study. I'm going to probably murder the pronunciation of of this name, Farhanzolt et al, um, a few years ago, that looked at within the deficits. Yes. So essentially, they were looking at people who were they had the similar levels of deficit, the similar restrictions, and I hope I got the name of the study right mm. <laughs> right here. I can do that. But anyway, the study 
<laughs> and this study was similar levels of deficit, but some people were, say, consuming it all earlier in the day or later in the day, whereas other people were spreading it out more throughout the day. And those that were avoiding those large within-day deficits actually had had uh, better outcomes than those that were spending most of the day essentially fasting. So I think frequent uh, frequent meal consumption can be quite useful because it just means that you're you're continuously uh, getting calories to the body there. You're continuously getting nutrients. So I think frequency of consumption can be very important. And from a practical point of view, I would say that's very important for athletes particularly coming back, as we said, to those athletes that are maybe at highest risk, mm. who may be the endurance athletes. Um, I've recently started cycling. I'm by no means a cyclist, but I've recently started it. And like you get up in the morning, you go out, like you're gone for three, four hours by the time you actually yeah. drive to the spot, get your bike out. It just doesn't leave much time in the day. And then, of course, you're going to have higher level athletes who are maybe doing that for either longer or twice a day. If you're trying to keep all of your food for your kind of your set meals, it's really hard yeah. to eat that amount in that time period. So if you're continuously grazing and snacking, it means that you're, you're, you're increasing the availability right throughout the day. So I would say that's definitely a, a practical strategy that can help. Yeah. Um, that can help to, to maybe not, it's not maybe going to block the level, negative effects of potential deficit, but potentially minimize them. Yeah, no, that's great. And, you know, your most recent paper investigated that low energy availability. Thinking about it from that sort of, life history theory and that's such as like it's such an interesting um sort of concept so can you sort of broadly we're shifting gears again just to finish up can we talk about sort of the core tenets of it and the trade-offs that are actually made um potentially for elite performance I must say, I, I really loved working on that paper. Uh, it came about, the idea for it came about, as with all good ideas, I was having a beer with a mate. Yes. And we were, uh, Megan Shirley, who's the lead author on that, and we were discussing our research areas. And on initially, it seemed like we our research areas had nothing to do with each other. Mm. And then as we started talking more and more, we started seeing the similarities. Um Essentially, with life history theory, this started out looking at the, the pace of different species' life, life uh, lifespans mm. and how that affected important events. Like, for example, if a species who has a very short lifespan um, would reproduce earlier, uh, reach maturity earlier, then a species who lives for longer, everything is kind of more spread out. And one of the core tenets of life history theory is that energy is finite. Yeah. And if it's used for one process, it can't be used for the other for another, which means that the body needs to allocate it out in the way that makes most sense for the body. Mm. When you go into deficit, it means it places a challenge on the body. It, 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 it heightens those, they call them the trade-offs that must be made. Mm. So if you send it at one place, you can't send it somewhere else. But then if you reduce the overall amount, maybe you don't have enough to send it anywhere. Yeah, yeah. And the analogy that's often used is like money, uh, what you earn versus what you spend. Yeah. If you have, if you cut your income or increase your expenditure, economies have to be made, trade-offs have to be made. And that's the way the body works as well in terms of how it deals uh, with the energy that you consume each day and the energy that you burn each day. Um, so yeah, the core tenets of life, life history theory is really about those energetic trade-offs mm. about how the body allocates uh, energy among different systems and the kind of internal competition that might arise between systems because if you fuel one, with finite energy you can't give it to another yeah 
in your paper, you sort of talk about some of those trade-offs for elite performance, like reproduction or somatic maintenance, uh, growth and immunity. So uh, do we know anything about, um, I mean, obviously this is where the uh, practical sort of understanding of REDS comes into it as well, right? Because when there is that energy deficiency, we see that the uh, detrimental effects of that with regards to what the athlete experiences on a day-to-day basis, but also over time with regards to um, hormonal disruptions and a suppressed immune system and, and things like that. So does the life history theory, I suppose, does that sort of help us understand um, the trade-offs that are made for elite performance? Yeah, and I think that that's why I really enjoyed working on this because, like I stressed, I'm not an evolutionary anthropologist, but other people on the team, I I learned so much from them. This theory allowed me to visualize things that I was reading, or allowed me to contextualize things that I was reading and data that I was seeing, both from other people and from myself. It kind of provides an umbrella that we can just use to consider this. The whole notion of trade-offs can be applied in so many ways. Yeah. Um, and to so many situations. And I think the, the relative energy deficiency in sports, that, that's one of them. There's all these systems in the body that theoretically can all be impacted uh, when energy availability is low. But the body is going to, is going to kind of protect some, while sacrifice, which may require sacrificing others. So I think it's so interesting for us to think about now is what's the order? Yeah. What's going to go first? So what do we need to kind of target? What's going to be protected? like you just said there, there's going to the issue of timing is going to be so important and there's so much we need to do to do to, to better understand there because the body is actually very well equipped at dealing with short-term deficits. We've evolved that. It's, it's a notion called phenotypic plasticity, yeah. which is our ability to, to rapidly adapt to what's going on in that moment. So if you've got a short period of energy, low energy availability, your body's actually pretty good at dealing with that yeah. and can cope with it. Like you said, though, when that goes into the long term and you've got kind of chronic hormonal suppression, et cetera, that can have more long term consequences. So we really need to think about need to think about that in terms of there are certainly periods of time where low energy availability might actually be quite useful within a periodized training program and the body might cope quite well with that. However, if you're chronically uh, suppressed or if you're chronically um, running on, on low um, fuel, then there can be more chronic consequences. So I think that that's something interesting to, to consider. I suppose for me, the, what kind of this article is a quote by uh, is it Theodoro Dubzansky. Yeah. Again, I'm terrible at pronouncing these names, but nothing makes sense in biology except in the light of evolution. Yeah. And that for me is, is such an interesting thing to look at. We're all aware of that. We're aware that evolutionary kind of created who we are. However, certainly in my day-to-day practice, until I got into this area of research, I wasn't really applying or thinking about it day-to-day. But I think we really need to think about why the body is responding in the way it is. The body is doing its best to cope and survive in the circumstances that are there. And if we really think about why it is, we can try to think of strategies that work with the body and not against it, with our, with our nature. And I think that's where using evolutionary theories and considering them from this perspective does have very real practical application today because we can understand 
where our body is coming from and try to work with it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much synergy between what you were just saying and what I was reading in Herman Ponce's book with uh, metabolism and his research looking at how the body has really, like the, uh, what population did he work with again? Was it was uh, Hadza. Hadza. It is the Hadza, Hadza, isn't it? I think it's where yeah. he's, he's done the majority yes. of his work is with the Hadza. Yeah, of course. Like, I couldn't remember if it was the Hadza that Herman was talking about or that was some something some other thing that I was reading but yeah 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 and just how they've really like had the energy expenditure is no different to ours because the body has adapted to allow for that expenditure there by pulling from other areas of um like the trade-off basically like exactly immune and reproduction and all of it and it's uh, yeah, it, it's it's funny this since I've gotten into this area of research I'm using the term trade-off everywhere in terms of making work decisions life decisions yeah. relationship decisions I'm like it's all about the trade-offs <laughs> people are so sick of me saying this um but it really is like uh, and, and another conversation that that you had recently uh, with uh, professor Schofield where you're talking about the the balance of everything yes. everything has pros and cons and decisions have to be made and it's in here, we're looking at energetic trade-offs and the decisions that the body makes. I say decisions, obviously they're yeah. not conscious. Uh, we don't consciously decide, but the body is deciding. Yeah. Um, they're all, we're weighing up the pros and cons of sending energy here versus sending energy there. And there, there's no perfect. The body is just trying to do the best that it can with what it has. And I think if we keep that in mind, we can do our best to work with the body. Yeah. And consider certain things like, like we know that uh, one of the main consequences of low energy availability is for women is suppressed uh, reproductive function. Yeah. Periods can stop. The menstrual cycle can stop. Now, that is the body essentially holding on to that energy, not engaging in a risky, in a very energetically costly process when, when energy is low. It's a sign. Your body is telling you. I'm actually, uh, now there, there can be other reasons that it can happen, but it's very common when somebody is under fueling that menstruation can stop that doesn't necessarily mean it's not it's, it's not necessarily that that on its own that, that moment is a huge problem but it is a very clear signal that your body is sending you saying i'm in conservation mode here yeah so take that signal and see what you can do look at your overall diet look at your overall exercise habits see where you, where you can reduce that deficit if at all possible um, and just like listen to your body. It's very, very smart. Our bodies are very, very smart if we can listen to them. Yeah, totally. And I really, I like how you sort of outline, you know, four different areas where those trade-offs are made. Because I do know with some women that their reproductive cycle is not is largely unaffected by extended periods of deficit. This is from a practical perspective. I'm not talking research here but as a clinician you know where women um some people's hormones seem really robust in the face of um that energy deficit whereas but they might be sick all the time or something else might be amiss so i you know i think and this is me just sort of speaking theoretically almost like a thought experiment like i wonder if there is that variation in where the body decides the trade-offs are made and and if there is individual difference. And I think that, I think that's, to me, that's one of the, the main takeaway points is that the body is reacting to its environment. Yeah. There's going to be certain, certain broad principles that the body is going to abide by. For example, evolution is all about passing on your genetic material to the next generation and surviving. Uh, so there's going to be certain broad principles that 
that that the body will adhere to. But it's going to depend on your individual situation, yeah. what's going on. And some of that is factors like your sex, your age, your body composition, your training status. They may all influence the energy allocation strategy and the trade-offs that are made. But like you just said, you can also have two women the same age, same training status, similar body composition, and one will react in one way and another will react in another way. And that's the, the individual genetic makeup or perhaps other things that are going on outside of those broad factors. So I think for me, one of the lessons to, to take from, from the, from, or, or what I personally took away from that paper to an extent was that these theories are so useful to contextualize how the body works overall. However, one size fits all never fits anyone we are variable we are individual uh, so we have to take into account the individual so i think we it's and it's the same when you're thinking about say guidelines for energy availability we don't really know what the exact numbers are mm. like we use things like 45 kilocals is balanced 30 you're getting on low but that's the, the studies that they're based on essentially chose them as a model for that particular study which is absolutely fine and then we've all kind of adopted them but if you measure at 45 and you measure at 30, do we know that it actually happened at 30 or did it happen at 42 or 37? Like you said, is there individual variability to different people? We, we, we take these guidelines and we kind of assume that they apply to all, but they don't. There's no set threshold that we're all going to adhere to because we're all individual. So I think we should use these guidelines as a, as, as a starting point to get an idea where somebody is, but we then have to consider the individual because it's possible that these women that you've referred to maybe they just run more efficiently in other ways so maybe they're not really a deficit at all maybe the thresholds that we've used doesn't actually apply there or maybe like you said there's trade-offs going on in other places um so i don't mean to discount the research is so important no, no. these guidelines are so important for us all to to have a, a to, to be to be talking a common language and to have some kind of reference point but everyone is going to vary around those reference points. Yeah. So we, all, we really do have to take the, the individual into account. Yeah, completely. Sorry, Emma, just to finish up, um, what now with you and your research? Where are you at? What can we expect from your lab over the next sort of year? Has you got anything new and exciting coming out? Um, I'm really keen to, as I say, this, this whole area of evolution, uh, considering evolutionary um, theories in the light of exercise science, that's something I'd really like to push forward with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm hoping I've got a couple of ideas for projects there. Um, as I say, my main focus right now is on bone metabolism and how exercise and nutrition are going to influence that. And within that, uh, energy availability is one of my main um, areas. So that's really what I hope I'm going to be um, talking about as much as possible in the next while. Um, I've also got a few or I'm collaborating on a few really exciting projects around female physiology and um, how how female hormones may influence um, response to training, yeah. uh, how fluctuations can influence performance. So I'd, uh, it's, it's a really topical area of, 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 um, of research at the moment. Um, so they're kind of the, the areas I'm focusing on. So I hope I'll be something to say on them in the future that is awesome and I and absolutely that female physiology and understanding better the research and actually refining the research before it begins so we're able to make better decisions um that's going to be a really um important piece of this over the next few years I I or at least I feel as well yeah 
Oh, I 100% agree. And I'll actually, I give a plug to a, a society that I'm involved with as well. It's called the STORC, the Society for mm. Transparency, Openness and Replication in Kinesiology. And it's just that. It's about trying to figure out how we can make science um, more open, more more useful, higher quality. Um, and I do find that I love being involved in that organization. And I think what you just said about kind of the research in female physiology really does apply across the board. I think the best thing we can do is before we get started, really, really think about what are we trying to do here? Um, because yeah. there's so many interesting questions to tackle, but they're super complex. And I think sometimes yeah. we all fall into the trap of trying to design one study that answers everything, but it's just not possible. We're setting ourselves yeah. up to fail. So I think if we can all really take a step back and think what are the really essential questions, even if it's just a small, small piece of the puzzle, if mm. we can answer that small piece cumulatively, we're really going to push the things forward. So I think and the female um, the female physiology areas for certain sure one, but across the board in exercise science, yeah. um, I think that that's such an important thing to do. Yeah, no, that is awesome, Emma. Thank you so much for your um, time today. I really appreciate it. And I know the listeners will be um, uh, will have a much better understanding of, you know, what impacts bone, what are the things that we can do about it, and what are some of the things which we need to be mindful of, particularly from that sort of um, athletic perspective. I'll put links to your papers that we've discussed in today's show. And um, if anyone wants to reach out, how can they find you? Um, I'm probably Twitter is probably handy enough way to, to find me Emer Dole, um, E-I-M-E-A-R-D-O-L. And uh, or if you have a look on my email address on ResearchGate, is, uh, if, you, if you Google my thing, you'll find my, my, my contact details. And I'm always very happy to, to chat, discuss these things. Um, so feel very free to reach out to me. Awesome. Thanks so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed the, the conversation. It's great to take part. Oh, lovely. Thank you so much, Emma, and um, enjoy your, the rest of your evening. Thank you very much. I will indeed. All right, guys, hope you really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed chatting to her. She was such a wealth of information. And basically, chatting to her was like sitting down with a mate, which I love. On that, next week on the podcast, I literally did just that. Sit down and chat to Dr. Eric Helms and Dr. Cliff Harvey about a range of different health topics as requested by you, listeners. So hopefully you will enjoy the conversation I have, which we will be bringing to you next week. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin, or over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where in addition to a number of programs you can sign up to, you can book a one-on-one -on -one consultation with me. And just before I head off, I want to let you know that I am doing a live webinar Tuesday the 19th of April in and around fat loss, fasting and protein. So all the things that you know I love talking about. We will pop a link to a registration page um, in the show notes for today. But also keep an eye out on social media because you can also find the link through there. It's completely free. It'll kick off at 7pm. It's in a couple of weeks and it's in the lead up to the autumn edition for Monday's Matter. All right, guys, you have a great week and catch you next week.